Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Last week, I was unable to record the introduction to our episode with Michael McFall and Julia Yaffe because I was scrambling to get to Poland in order to cover the shocking and horrifying and perhaps monumentally portentous events unfolding on the ground in Ukraine from the vantage of a frontline NATO state. What that meant was recording this week's podcast from Warsaw and then recording this very introduction from a different capital city of a different frontline NATO state, Tallinn, Estonia, where right around the time this episode drops, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken will be closing out his four-day tour of Western allies, Poland, Moldova, Latvia, and Estonia that share borders either with Ukraine or Russia itself. I say all this because spending the past week in this particular region, with its still vivid memories of being part of the former Soviet Union, its front row seat to the carnage that Russia is raining down on Kyiv, Kharkiv, Kherson, Sumy, Maripol, and so many other Ukrainian cities, and its experience of gauging Vladimir Putin's behavior and motives and aspirations from a far less comfortable and almost certainly less misleading distance than we in America enjoy has thrown into sharp relief just how potentially world historical the war in Ukraine could turn out to be and how daunting and perilous the challenges they pose to NATO and the Western alliance more broadly are and how monumental and legacy-defining they could be for President Joe Biden. Happily, we already had a guest on deck for this week who is sort of custom-built for the kind of conversation I wanted to have, a guest that we'd planned before war broke out, to have come on and talk about Biden's State of the Union, but whose experience and expertise ranges widely and deeply across matters both foreign and domestic, and who also happens to have just published a fabulous new book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, that has much to say about the nature of presidential leadership in times of existential crisis. That guest is a senior political analyst, fill-in anchor, and all-around on-air fixture at CNN, and a good friend and genuinely great talker, the one and only John Avlon. This is why liberty matters. This is why wealth without liberty is a bad trade for you, your family, your business, and civilization. So I think that Putin's violent invasion here has actually crystallized why it matters, why it counts. John Avalon has one of those resumes that indicate he's someone you might just hate. It's so impressive and gold-plated and free of notable failure. The BA from Yale, the MBA from Columbia, the youngest speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani back when he was known as America's mayor, long before he lost his mind. The meteoric ascent at the Daily Beast, where, starting in 2008, Avalon rose from columnist to political editor, then executive editor, the managing editor, and finally to editor-in-chief before he made the jump to CNN full-time in 2018 and the author of three well-received and well-reviewed books, Independent Nation, How Centrists Can Change American Politics, Wingnuts, How the Lunatic Fringe is Hijacking America, and Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations, all those before his new Lincoln tome. As I said, you can't help thinking you'd hate this guy, were it not for the fact that as soon as you meet him, you discover he's a total mensch. And thank God for that, because not only did I insist on making Avalon tape this episode late last Saturday afternoon, but then I kept pushing back the time due to some craziness I was coping with in Warsaw, and then I kept him waiting even longer after I finally settled on a time. Now who's the guy you think you'd hate? (laughs) 
But John Avalon was utterly unfazed, and we got into pretty much everything dominating the headlines right now. Russia and Ukraine, Putin and Biden, Trump and the batshit crazy wing of the GOP that thinks the former is preferable to the latter, the horrific refugee crisis in Europe, and the even more terrifying prospect of nuclear escalation. We also dove deep into his Lincoln book, including listening to some clips of Daniel Day-Lewis's timeless and transcendent portrayal a decade ago of America's greatest president. And the lessons that Lincoln holds for any president coping with the kind of chasmic divisions and poisonous polarization that nearly tore our country in half during his time in office and that have reemerged with a vengeance to plague us again now. The kind of war that Lincoln had to fight was a civil war, not a world war, but his core insight about the nature of victory, that if you don't win the peace, you really don't win the war, and that the path to winning is unconditional surrender by the forces of darkness, followed by magnanimity and reconciliation on the part of the victor, well, that may prove to be just as applicable to the Russia-Ukraine conflagration as it was to the Civil War. Which isn't to say that we are, in fact, headed for World War III, but wherever it is we're headed, it sure doesn't look pretty, especially from the place where I'm sitting now, where the specter of the Soviet Union still looms large, and the fear that Putin wants to reconstitute it is everywhere and acute, and where, whether or not they say so out loud, pretty much everyone is counting on the United States to keep this conflict from plunging Europe into a howling miasma of hell and high water. We have survived the night that could have stopped the history of Ukraine and Europe, said the president of Ukraine this morning. Indeed, every day provides us with uh, newer and newer evidence uh, that it is not only Ukraine under Russian attack. It is Europe. It is the entire world. It is humanity. And finally, it is the future of the next generations. So, John Avalon, it's great to have you here on Hell and High Water. And uh, Radio Free Europe here is where I'm, I'm broadcasting <laughs> from, from my pirate radio ship in Warsaw on my way to Tallinn tomorrow to catch up with Tony Blinken. And by the time this podcast comes out, I will be in Estonia. So it's interesting that, that, that <laughs> I don't know. How are you, man? You good? I'm doing fine, man. I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you, but talk about crazy days. I mean, you've just been on the board. Yeah. I was on the border and the speed with which the refugee crisis here built was kind of stunning. Like when we got here at the beginning of the week, it was like 660,000 and a couple of days later, it was up to a million. And you know, the UN had said, well, it could be five if things get bad. And after getting to a million in seven days, Jeez. they were like, okay, maybe it could be 10 million. And you know, it took three months to get to a million in Syria in 2013. Like it took seven days in this crisis. And you see Poland's taken half of the refugees and this one place we went to is the main majority of the people coming to Poland. So it's like one door, literally a door from a customs house on the border that like 250,000 people have come through in the last seven days. You know, it's like, it's wild. Jesus. It's one of the things you really have a feeling for here and I wanna get your sense of it. I mean, I've been stunned by how interested Americans are in this crisis. They don't normally give a shit about foreign policy, but they are really interested in Ukraine, number one. And number two, it's like, you get over here and you're like, it's not a Ukraine thing. You know, it's Moldova and it's Czechoslovakia, it's Poland for sure, Baltic states that are all looking at this going, this isn't just about Ukraine. This is about what comes after Ukraine if Vladimir Putin takes over Ukraine. So I'm interested just in your top line sense of like how Americans are thinking about this, how Europeans are thinking about this, and how all of us should think about it in the world historical context. Well, I, I think it's a reminder 
that the forces of history are always with us. You know, it's not something that takes place in the past. It takes place in the here and now. And sometimes it's more urgent. And I think people are waking up to realize that actually foreign policy is not something you can just dismiss as someone else's problem. You know, all the apologists and the people sort of talking about the need for peace and buying into the moral relativism with Putin's threats of aggression, I think, have been somewhat silenced by the savagery of this attack. And I think it's resonating in the United States in part because all those Cold War synapses that have been dormant for a really long time are reawakening. And of course, it's a history that goes back to the Second World War and the peace that America and its allies helped secure through the creation of NATO, through the Marshall Plan. And all of a sudden, that that liberal international order is being directly threatened. And the implications for the trajectory of the 21st century are huge. You know, Ukraine today, but China's watching and possibly Taiwan tomorrow, depending on what happens. It's exactly the object lesson of why we have to care about defending democracy at home and abroad, because the absence of it is the law of the jungle. And that's what Putin is showing. You know, he believes that might makes right. We believe the opposite in America and the Western world. And you need to stand up for it. And I think the way it's being done right now, the inspirational example of Zelensky and the Ukrainians, that's resonating throughout the world. I think the fact that this is a social media covered invasion also changes people's ability to tune it out in a way that's incredibly powerful. But this is exactly why you can't pretend that refugees and, and foreign policy is always someone else's problem. It's not, especially now. There's definitely a thing about this that I've been trying to get my arms around, which is, you know, the degree to which people are interested in this around the world, as I said, is higher than your normal foreign policy crisis. And, and I think in America, partly it's about, as you said, about the Cold War history and about Russia and the synapses firing. Partly it's about the invocation of nuclear weapons, which we can talk about in a minute. And that kind of mm -hmm. gets people's attention, even when they're yeah. not only paying attention, correctly so. Yeah. And then there's the other thing, which I think is not remarked upon enough, which is like Vladimir Putin is a unique creature, right? He's like really is a geopolitical supervillain who's kind of <laughs> cast himself in this way and embraced it. You know, Slobodan Milosevic or Paul Pot or Idi Amin, those guys like kept their crimes in the shadows. They didn't want to play the gold. They wanted to get away with shit in the dark. And Putin has more or less since he came on, you know, 22 years ago, became a, a political figure after his career in the KGB has more or less been like, unrepentantly, brazenly kind of embracing the notion of like, fuck you, I'm Darth Vader. You know, I'm happy to wear the black hat and I'm, I'm yeah. my provocations will be flagrant. He likes that he's built himself into a supervillain. And the combination of that, he means more to Americans, I think. Partly there's all of that and the fact that he intervened in the American election in 2016, which put him in the center of our politics. So suddenly it's like, I mean, no Americans gave a shit about Leonid Brezhnev. They didn't. You know, even in the height of the Cold War, people didn't get like Brezhnev, you know, Yuri Andropov. There were people who ran the Soviet Union when there was still a nuclear Cold War on that people in America couldn't pick out of a lineup. And everyone in America knows Vladimir Putin. It's a cultural thing as much as it is anything else, I think. Yeah. And I think, I mean, first of all, it's because he intervened in the 2016 election and tried again to do it in 2020. It's because he wears the black hat, as you say. It's that he lies brazenly, believes that aggression has its own logic and virtue. What's interesting to me is that when, you know, he first appeared on the scene and George H.W. Bush famously said he looked in his eyes and saw his soul, he was seen as a more disciplined, almost modernizing figure. I mean, there's an interview from 2017 I just saw the other day where he disavows any interest in Ukraine and has a very rational argument for why 
that's not on his menu. But something has changed in the last several years. And the fact that Putin's sort of embrace of playing this sort of cartoon villain also coincided with the rise of Donald Trump, who also believed that things like ethics are weakness and lying is perfectly acceptable to achieve certain ends. And an outright admiration for autocrats and autocracy and strongmen, that all, I think, further resonates, makes Putin more of a figure in our politics and pop culture consciousness. But we've also had a brush with a creature of a similar spirit. It's a cautionary tale. I mean, look, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, said what many of us had been reported at the time and many of us were concerned about, which is that Trump was perfectly willing, if not eager, to pull out of NATO in a second term. And the argument that he would make with isolationists of Tucker Carlson, who even in, in that time, 2017, 2018, was arguing against why would America fight for NATO? Why would America fight for Montenegro? All this rationalization designed to sort of say this isn't our fight, which creates a pretext for that kind of a withdrawal. It just raises the stakes because if this had been happening under that president's watch, things would be even worse. Do you think there's a credible argument that can be made that the four years of Trump sort of emboldened Putin to do this thing that he's done, that that's part of the story, not all the story, part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he showed that he could winnow his way into American politics and inflame divisions and have somebody who was a supplicant in the Oval Office. And, you know, the whole rewriting of history that says, well, he didn't do this under Trump because he respected America's strength is self-evidently BS because Donald Trump, and you can't say this enough, this isn't only about Donald Trump, but the mere surreal fact that he would never criticize Vladimir Putin about anything. He would not confront, he would not criticize. To the point where he was actually at great odds with some people in his government who were trying to take a realist harder line of that sort of John McCain strain inside the GOP to the extent it still exists. And I think, you know, a case could be made that this was always on Putin's to-do list, sort of a YOLO invasion, but he thought he might be doing it against the backdrop of Trump further weakening international alliances, particularly NATO. But it wasn't just NATO. Remember, one of the things Trump did in the last year, in addition to getting impeached over Ukraine by withholding military arms from them, by trying to get him to dig up dirt on Biden, was to reduce troop levels in Germany. Everyone's saying, why is this all of a sudden a priority for you? This has been a priority of Vladimir Putin forever. But why is this all of a sudden on the top of your list? So I do think that nothing in politics or history happens in a vacuum. That's part of the context that's led to this moment. You could also credibly say that the withdrawal, the disastrous style of withdrawal from Afghanistan might have emboldened him as well. Yeah. But we have seen, I mean, Russia successfully interfered in an American election and got a president who always on his own seemed to magically drift towards Vladimir Putin's preferred foreign policy prescriptions from a guy who didn't have a lot of specific policy preferences beyond instincts. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I, well, not funny, but I saw Mark Brzezinski, the U.S. ambassador to, mm. to Poland the other day, and I asked him this question. I said, you know, Putin has a lot of objectives, right, presumably, and, and mm. we don't even know most of them or can't get inside his head. I keep arguing with people that like the notion that there's like a bright line between he's nuts and he's a rational actor is a ridiculous thing. It's a false binary. There are a lot of delusional people out there. You and I might be among them on times. <laughs> We're in your delusion. Your delusion is perfectly logical. And it's not like you're haywire. It's not like you're eating gravel and sand or like <laughs> you're pooping your shit in your pants. It's like he's messianic, which is mm-hmm. as his own internal logic, right? It's not like you're unhinged. You're just not thinking the way that most people do. And in the middle of all that, you know, I said, you know, but is one of his objectives 
in addition to trying to maybe remake the Soviet Union and do other things, right? Is it to weaken Joe Biden? Is there some of this? I want to undermine Biden. I want to challenge him, test him, weaken him, and potentially open the door to a more pro-Putin president to come back in 2024, whether that's Donald Trump or whether that's any of these other clowns who walk around now either praising Putin publicly while he's invading Ukraine Mm -hmm. or declining to criticize him, which is an awful lot, not of the Republican Party, which we can talk about, but an awful lot of the Republican presidential primary in 2024 are in that position. Which is completely insane. But it's yes. just underscored that. <laughs> from, so pause. From, Let's pause on that. Vladimir Putin <laughs> might not be wholly insane, but that's a batshit crazy. That's batshit crazy because it's a total departure from something as basic as national interest, which is a core role of the president, the oath of office, yeah. to the tradition of the Republican Party, which has been internationalist beginning with at least Eisenhower through Reagan and through the Bushes, to live in fear of criticizing Vladimir Putin. If you're someone who wants to be an American president, is itself disqualifying? And the fact that there is a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party, and you know, always under the cloak of some kind of isolationism, which conveniently enough was also called America First in the run-up to the Second World War, that itself is is hugely sobering. But to your question, like, do you think that there's a calculus here where he's trying to weaken Joe Biden? I think that's a that's a bonus. We have seen some evidence that you know some foreign countries that were hostile to Joe Biden that were friendly with Donald Trump, you know, aren't going to do many favors when it comes to like gas prices. Right. You know, they, they like the autocrat friendly, autocrat adjacent former president right. and are hoping to get some kind of redux because, you know, you can go kill a journalist yeah. and you won't get a condemnation from the U.S. government. What I think is true and what Mark Brzezinski, who I mentioned before, but didn't really complete my question said, and he would never say anything, yeah. you know, loyal administration official would never criticize Biden. But he said two things. He's been studying Putin since he ran the Russia desk for the NSC under Clinton in 99. So he like, watched him when he first came to power. He's like, we watched him for a long time, as his father did before yeah. his father passed Vignev. He said, you know, Putin is, is very obsessed with timing. He bides his time and he picks his moments. Well, sometimes not. And he may have miscalculated here. We'll see. But he said, there's no question that given his obsession with timing, that he reached a conclusion that America was weak and divided and that the circumstances were ripe where he thought he could get away with this. And again, Brzezinski wouldn't say he thought Joe Biden was in trouble, but that was the kind of implication of it, right? He was assessing the state, seeing where Biden's politics are, how totally divided we are, a subject that you're obsessed with, the divisions in the country, and said, you know, this is a time when people aren't taking me seriously. You know, a lot of people are just kind of saying, oh, he's going to encircle Ukraine, but he'll never invade. Mm-hmm. And, and Americans are distracted and fat and sloppy and lazy and, and hate each other. And Facebook's driving everyone crazy. And Joe Biden is, in his ju- judgment, weak. This is the time to go for it. Let's go. I think that's that's at least part of the calculus. Whatever it means for the future, that he saw an opening or what he thought was an opening. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the other piece of it is, you know, primarily, and this is true throughout history and just the psychology of any leader is that he's probably responding to certain domestic political pressures as well that we don't have as ready an insight into. I think, of course, the irony is, is it has backfired enormously. First of all, the apathy and division he thought he would get in the West has not continued. I mean, I was very struck by the fact that former Secretary of State Condi Rice said on Fox News that she thought Biden was handling this beautifully and had actually she had never seen NATO and the West more united. Yep. And, you know, the Fox News host, Harris Faulkner, looked, I mean, threw up his mouth a little bit and he <laughs> yeah. didn't, know what to, didn't know what to make of that. It was just, wait, I haven't heard that perspective. I'm not yeah. quite sure how to respond. But that's a huge endorsement. And I do think that what's been happening, first of all, NATO has found a renewed purpose and been revitalized and reunited by this clear threat. 
Yep. Right. The resolve of the West outside these sort of, you know, pro-Putin echo chambers and their bots and trolls on social media, of whom there are many, some of whom are prominent, always playing the whataboutism game. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. that that's that signature deal. You know, always look for the people who, you know, it's great to be a gadfly against the United States. But if you never criticize Vladimir Putin, at some point, you got to ask why, particularly at a moment like this. But I do think that it has backfired. NATO has been reunited. Biden actually, I think, has been elevated because of the way he's handled this to date. And I do think what we're watching in terms of this it's it's almost, I think, too weak to call it sanctions. I mean, this this massive international crackdown, isolation, freezing and seizing Russian assets, particularly for the oligarchs and the kleptocrat class, is a huge deal. And it is a new way of punishing a nation, creating strict accountability without drifting towards a kinetic war. And we'll, we'll see if that holds. But this is not the sanctions that were thrown in right. Putin's direction yeah. after Crimea. That was clearly ineffectual. And that in addition to the fact that we didn't pay sufficient attention in the West, we were preoccupied with missing airplanes. And there was not that kind of unified, really bright line that said, no, you don't get to annex other nations, uh, states territory. And that clearly set the pretext for this. Yeah. I mean, he felt like, you know, whatever sanctions you got, throw them. I can handle it. He didn't anticipate this. Yeah. And sort of thought so some combination of bring on the sanctions, I can survive them, and NATO will fracture over any serious sanctions, which hasn't happened so far, and, and gets to your Condé Rice point about how Biden has kept the alliance unified together. You know, I'll ask you one last Republican question, then I want to actually mm -hmm. ask you something directly about Biden. In that moment, right when the invasion was happening in the days immediately before, you know, we saw Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Mike Pompeo and, of course, Tucker saying their assholic stuff about Putin as that fell into the category that I mentioned a second ago. It's interesting that, you know, there was in the State of the Union, a lot of Republicans who stood up and cheered Joe Biden on the foreign policy section. Not all of them, but a, lot, you know, a decent number. And on our first episode of the circus back that I'm here in the middle of editing as we speak, not literally at this moment, but the reason I was really late for this call, you know, John Bolton's on it, who you mentioned a second ago. He's like, I think that though there are some outliers, but what I think Putin has done is he has revived the traditional wing of establishment republicanism. It's like there was a drift. There were some collaborationists and some isolationists and some outright authoritarian lovers in the Republican Party. They names Trump. But he's like, what this has really done is given a new breath of life to the old-fashioned anti authoritarian Republican thinkers and politicians. And he's like, by the time 2024 comes, anybody who's not firmly set against Vladimir Putin will be read out of the Republican Party. Hmm. I'm not endorsing that view. I'm stating that view and asking you, what do you think of that view? I think that's far too overconfident a statement on Bolton's part. That's a little bit of wishful thinking, given the degree to which the rot has set into the Republican Party. I mean, you have a former Secretary of State, you have some of the loudest, most popular voices in the Republican Party who have been advocating this kind of, you know, please Putin, don't hurt him attitude. I do think in the Senate, though, with the exception of Rand Paul and his sort of traditional non-interventionism, that you've seen there is still a core of the Republican Party who are unwilling to abandon America as a leader in the world, particularly when confronted with authoritarianism. You can't attack China all day long and then pretend that Vladimir Putin uh, aggression against Ukraine is not some variation of the same virus. So I do think it's causing some of these folks to stiffen their civic backbone a little bit and speak out and get emboldened. I do think that Trump's comments praising Putin as a genius, for the first time you started to see a little bit of daylight. 
you know, he went even further the other day and basically, you know, said it would be smart for China to invade Taiwan. That's totally out of step. So I think you're actually starting to see a degree of isolation for Donald Trump because he's so far out on this issue and it's so clearly counter to anything resembling American interests or American values. The Pompeo dance is particularly disgusting to me because here's a guy who should know better, even if he tried to sort of be a supplicant with Trump in the White House. If he's clearly going to run, as he clearly is, even if Trump's going to run, you'd think he'd try to do it and say, I'll be Trumpy, but more responsible when it comes to foreign policy. Instead, he's playing a game about how sort of elegant and masterful Putin is to score domestic political points. If this was Republicans in the House we were surveying, I think the ratio would be very different. And that's really important to consider. I mean, if you do poll the members of the Sedition Caucus and how many of them are sort of neo-isolationist because in part they're afraid of Trump's base, which is all this about fear and greed. Let's get real. I think the rot is a lot deeper than John Bolton would like to think. But I do think it's very difficult to look at the, the sheer savagery and brutality and violent will to power that Putin is trying to impose on the people of Ukraine. And for all the new talking points that they were just getting accustomed to spouting to stick with that, because you know what? Yeah, you stick with it. You've enabled this. You've endorsed this. So then don't come around and try to pretend you're more hawkish or holier than thou when it comes to standing up for America. But that new isolationist strain is deep. And you see some evidence of it on the far left as well as the far right. It's got a longer lineage over there, but the far right has really taken over some of the most powerful people in the party and the loudest voices. Here's what I think, you know, what's happened in a week. What's happened in a week was last weekend, the meta macro 30,000 a foot thing of this war was, man, the Ukrainians are brave and they have great fortitude and they are heroes and Zelensky's amazing. And they are putting up an incredible fight and Russia is having a harder time on every level than they thought they were going to have, or we thought they were going to have in waging this war. And now it's a week later, and there's about 15 Ukrainian cities are, that are under siege and on fire, and he hasn't even gotten to Kiev yet, Vladimir Putin, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the character, the darkness, the horrifying kind of barbarism of the war has increased dramatically in the course of seven days. Not unexpected to some people, mm-hmm. but it's like Putin didn't give up. He wasn't like, oh, you know, these guys, these Ukrainians are, are resourceful. I guess I've been beaten. Well, you had this little tone of some of the coverage was like, hey, maybe Putin will just start looking for a way out. He's like, no, nah, I'm not looking for a way out. I turned... Kiev into Aleppo and, and I, mm-hmm. or into Grozny, you know, like that's mm-hmm. what we could be looking at. Could get worse. You know, mm-hmm. Macron came out, the Elysee Palace said, yeah, I talked to Putin. He's not going to stop. He's going to go all the way. He's going to do whatever it takes, right? So the worst days are to come. The worst is yet to come. Yeah. The worst is yet to come. So my question about all that goes to my real politic analysis, right? John, you've covered a lot of this stuff and we've, mm-hmm. over the years, we've talked about it on television and to each other. Is a moment coming when Kiev is basically looks like Dresden or Aleppo, or Grozny. Mm-hmm. And the notion that NATO is saying, we'll give you arms, but we won't give you a no-fly zone, and we certainly won't give you troops, and we're just going to let you burn because you're not a member of NATO. Membership have its privileges, but you know, we're sorry. We're going to live with that. There will be political pressure mm-hmm. to give in on the no-fly zone or do more. Is that mm-hmm. moment coming? Is that moment at hand? And how do you think Joe Biden and the rest of NATO will handle it if the world is outraged by what they see in those big cities, the barbarism, the atrocities that they're going to see in those big cities in Ukraine? So I think that moment is coming and the worst is yet to come. And that for Vladimir Putin, I mean, he's already committed war crimes with the use of vacuum bombs and things. 
the freezing of the assets of the oligarchs, the sustained shutdown of the Soviet stock market. This is one of those real-time moments where things could tip in any direction and the ramifications are massive. Putin is fighting for his own survival at the end of the day. Ukrainians are fighting for their own survival. At the end of the day, I don't believe that Vladimir Putin will be able to occupy a nation of 44 million people indefinitely. And I think part of the reason you've seen much more damage and some stalling of the convoys is that obviously Russia's divided. Some of the great heroism we're seeing is from some of the protests in Russia at enormous personal risk, further crackdown on freedoms. This invasion is a function of Vladimir Putin's ambition and paranoia, and I'll say evil, but did not have buy-in from the Russian people or even, I believe, many Russian elites, including some members of the military. That said, it's going forward because he has believes he has no other option right now. The pressure will rise to the United States. The reason the no-fly zone pressure has been resisted to date, of course, is that if a NATO jet is fired upon in the pursuit of that no-fly zone, then you could very quickly blunder your way into a third world war between nuclear armed powers. And I'm sure that you know Ambassador Brzezinski shares that concern because it's rational. You got a lot of different historical parallels to draw, none of which are perfect, but you don't want to, you know, sort of, you know, guns of August blunder your way into a nuclear world war. At the same time, I do think that, you know, it's been reported by some outlets that the U.S. has been giving stinger missiles to the Ukrainians. There's probably a lot going on that we don't know about. And that is as it should be, by which I mean that individual Western nations are probably providing more material and logistical intelligence support to Ukraine than can or should be divulged at this particular moment when we're talking, right? For the same reasons. But, you know, the other dynamic that's clearly at place, aside from like the really macro point, which is that occupying an unwilling nation indefinitely actually never works out. Okay. The dynamic of cell phones and social media, it seems to me, not to reduce this to a, a cultural impact, but in the same way that the rise of smartphones and social media changed on a domestic level, I'm not trying to draw a direct parallel, but I think the dynamics are not dissimilar. Police abuse of power and police violence all of a sudden was caught on camera in ways that were indelible. And that changed public sentiment because you couldn't simply retreat to the typical he said, she said, official version of events. This will work its way out in court. And a lot of it will be behind closed doors with a grand jury. People are seeing the horrors of war, the brutality of this, the heroism of the Ukrainians, the humanity of people under sustained assault in these cities in real time. And that's something we all probably know intellectually or get the movie version or read the history book, but this is happening in real time. And that changes things. I don't know that we know how it changes things. And I certainly am not going to be, you know, Pollyannish about, you know, that will end the war slash no. But Putin's ability to lie systemically to his people is been severely diminished, which is why he's trying these desperate grabs itself right now. And I do think that in some meaningful way, it changes the landscape of the information war and the disinformation war in ways that we're still probably trying to get our heads around because it's happening in real time. Yeah. I mean, look, I want to play Joe Biden during the State of the Union, and then we'll move on to your book, John. But I do want to play this first because it goes to a larger question. And then we'll talk about whether we think Joe Biden is right in what he says here, or if it's possible that he might be right, but we're still heading into a pretty ugly future. So let's take a listen. I know news about what's happening can seem alarming to all Americans, but I want you to know we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. When the history of this era is written, 
Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. Well, it shouldn't have taken something so terrible for people around the world to see what's at stake. Now everyone sees it clearly. So there's sort of two pieces to that. That was the kind of way we ended, including part of the foreign policy, Ukraine, Russia piece. One, which is we're going to be okay. And the other, which is in the end, you know, we will emerge stronger and Russia will emerge weaker. I want to ask you about both of those things, right? The first is, are we all going to be okay? I mean, like seeing again up here, I had one of my assistant was like doing, was measuring blast radiuses the other night when we got the news about them taking out this nuclear reactor, you know, people again, freaking out, right? People were freaking out over the fact that he'd invoked nuclear weapons on multiple occasions over the course of the last two weeks and increased his nuclear readiness posture. And there was stable rattling in both directions when the French foreign minister sort of said, well, you better look out. We're a nuclear armed alliance also here at NATO. And then Putin goes after people talk about Chernobyl all over the place here. People Mm. like remember not that long ago and it was pretty bad. The question is Vladimir Putin going to nuke New York City? Probably not, you know, but there are lots of ways in which nuclear weapons can happen. And you were talking before about escalation ladders and how things get out of control. The invocation of nuclear war, the contemplation of it is a dangerous thing in and of itself because it starts to get into the heads of of Russian listed men in missile silos who are on too much meth and think that, you know, Vladimir Putin is like the guy, like they decide they're going to push the wrong button. They don't have command control quite the way we do in in the United States. There's a lot to be worried about here, John, including the notion of the nuclear plants and what those things could mean if turned into sources for dirty bombs. There's lots to say. Do you think Joe Biden's right to be confident? I mean, I know he has to say we're going to be all right, but do you think he's right to be confident? How worried are you about the prospect of, you know, the nuclear GD getting out of the bottle under these circumstances? Look, the specter of nuclear war is designed to spread fear and terror. And my impulse then is to precisely say that that is precisely why we should not let those emotions make decisions for us, because that feeds into the calculus of people who want to use fear and terror to get their way. That's what this is all about. Uh, I don't want to diminish the danger of even tactical nuclear weapons, but I must imagine that if it gets to that point, Vladimir Putin knows that he is done, his nation is done in the eyes of history as well as within living memory, right? Yep. And remember, part of Putin's credibility among his apologists, remember Newsmax put him on the cover three months ago. (laughs) By the way, this should live in infamy. Vlad the Great. I'm sorry, I mean to laugh. Well, I mean, what's the equivalent of this? There is none, by the way, in American history, if you've looked for it. I mean, maybe America for the German-American Bund during, you know, the run-up to World War II, perhaps. Didn't the Berlin edition of People magazine call Hitler sexiest man alive in like 1935? Something like that. It's incredibly dark. But look, I mean, you know, there there has been all this fetishization of of Putin, right? This it's it's all part of a cult of the strongman. I mean, you had Steve Bannon fetishizing Putin, yeah. right, as some like counterculture warrior, right? All that has been exposed to be as sick as it always was for whatever rationalizations people chose to feed into it. So these are dark days because it's all been exposed. The mask is down, the delusions, the enemy of my enemy is my friend rationalizations. I mean, even Tucker Carlson was perhaps forced to half apologize. And, you know, I've had you know people from Tucker to Greenwald take shots at me for saying, we need to remember that we are not fragile. And as Churchill said, we're not made of sugar candy. You know, we need to stand up to authoritarian aggression. That is our obligation as citizens of America and the free world. And and to the extent that it results in economic pain in the United States, that cannot be discounted. But the government exists to marshal itself to reduce pressures at precisely this kind of a moment. Right. So if people are trying in their their 
moral relativist bag of tricks to find reasons why we shouldn't stand up to the kind of savagery that we're seeing. You know, I don't have a lot of time at that. And we can learn from the courage and the fact that previous generations have been through far worse. And we need to learn from that stuff. The optimism that Biden is invoking to get to your yeah, second point, yeah, yeah. it is sort of a jaunty FDR-esque in the middle of the Second World War. We'll get get through it. Biden is not a great order, but I thought it was a strong speech, particularly by his standard, even if we're grading on a curve, simply because it communicated vigor. Yeah. And I think that's been one of actually Biden's biggest challenges is communicating the vigor that we associate and want to see in a president and a presidency. Not for nothing, but, you know, because we're both these kinds of nerds. I mean, Biden's poll numbers start to really plummet among independents last summer around the botched withdrawal of Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So I think to the extent that he is strong and marshalling these sort of best traditions, you will see a bump. This is all, by the way, all of this kind of the work of the presidency should exist in a place far beyond poll number considerations. Sure, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. And but, so it but, but, it, I don't think it drives the decisions in most that's cases. But it's, it doesn't it doesn't exist outside that context. And the reality is, I think you're right. People don't get this that like approval ratings are these lagging indicators, and that what mm-hmm. presidents and really serious people who run presidential campaigns or run presidencies look at is they're looking at attributes all the time. What do the American people think about you on the question of are you a strong leader or not? Mm-hmm. What do the American people think of you on the question? Of, do you care about people like them? That's the stuff that gets you reelected. Eventually, your approval rating will catch up. If you're seen as a strong leader who cares about people like them, you're going to be in a good place. Your approval rating will eventually reflect that. If the attributes are, are eroded, you can't get anything. You can't get your approval rating back up and you can't win votes. That's exactly right. And you're right. That's the thing about, about the Afghanistan thing. It, it, it began to eat away at his strong leader number. And you know, I don't mean to reduce it to that. But actually, I thought the speech after the, the Ukraine part of this speech was just a laundry list. It was a typical state of the union. It wasn't that particularly good, but I thought he was actually really good talking about the war because he seemed, I, I, he seemed invigorated and, 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 and resolute and, and like, and he cares about this stuff. You know, he's good yes. on this stuff. Well, and, and it's genuine. I mean, this is somebody who, you know, the byproduct of his decades long <laughs> service in the Senate is this is somebody who actually knows and cares about foreign policy. And also yeah. he's actually most passionate about these multilateral institutions like NATO, which were under assault in the previous presidency. That's not the kind of thing that every president feels a real passion and purpose towards. And if anything, I think it should add more energy towards that call to have sort of a democracy alliances to counteract all the siren songs of autocracy, which in the past have been cloaked and rationalized because they offer a boatload of cash, not the stick we're seeing today. But, you know, something you just said about the rest of the speech is worth just nerding out on for a second. Biden, I was struck during the Afghanistan that he was pursuing a policy that he believed in that, in fact, was broadly popular. But the way it was done was so bad yep, that it yep. didn't matter that the policy he was executing was popular, right? Particularly among independents, which is the group I always try to focus on the most because they get ignored in Washington. The second half of the speech, yes, there is a laundry list quality, but I was really struck by the fact that it was genuinely populist in an economic sense. It was geared towards Tim Ryan's district and that looming Senate race. And Ryan, who I think is actually one of the better messengers on these economic issues. It was about manufacturing, the middle class, reducing costs on families. The message that Democrats would like to run on in 2022, but are unlikely to. And And the reason that struck me so much wasn't because that was such a real deal aspect of the speech, but because it exposed how much of what passes for populism today hmm. is actually just culture war fear mongering. Yeah. Yes. And I actually thought that part of the speech was strong, you know, for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, you were the same person who 
back when Bill Clinton could give those speeches about like high school uniforms and giving free cell phones to people. You were always like, those speeches, those those micro policies, those are, man, that's John, he's brilliant. And then, no, no, I, but here's the truth. I would mock those speeches at the time and say, Bill Clinton, that was the most boring speech in the world that went on for 134 minutes. And all he talked about was these itty bitty policies that don't affect anybody. Who gives a shit? That's a terrible speech. He could do so much better. And if people like you would go, no, those are the things the American people no. care about. And then you'd be proven right. No, and I'd be but, wrong. But, He'd get well, reelected. But, but, it turned out to be the most popular state of the union ever gave. And I'd look like an asshole. Well, no, no, no. But, but I mean, like the Dick Morris sort of paint by numbers approach of like, you know, vacation in Wyoming and, you know, a school uniform. I think that's horseshit. What, what I am reflecting the fact that is, is that, you know, my mother's family is from Youngstown, Ohio. And so I know Northeast Ohio and I know those people. I spent a lot of my life there. And so when Tim Ryan talks, I always think he makes more sense than almost any other Democrat on this issue. And to the extent Democrats need to win back working class, middle class, Midwestern, rural red state voters, which, P.S., they really do. They need to listen to a lot more to folks like that, as well as the John Testers and Steve Bullocks and, you know, Sherrod Brown's of the world. I'm kind of altering our, our course here, but I'm not by a lot. We're going to get to your book at, at length, I promise you. I actually just have fun nerding out with you on politics. Well, we're kind of on a little bit of a roll here on certain things. But I do want to ask you this question to come back to the thing about Biden's optimism, right? Which, yeah, this FDR is jaunty, but just to, to kind of put a wrap on, I have two more questions about, about Ukraine, and then we'll shift to some domestic stuff and eventually start talking about Abraham Lincoln. But here's my question. So the basic premise of it, which is, again, widely shared by Russian scholars and by war college academics and all these people. There's a lot of stuff circulating in the last week, which is essentially Putin is miscalculated here. In the end, he will lose this. Mm. This is not ending well for him. Hence Biden's statement, you know, in the end, America will emerge stronger and Russia will be weaker. There's a lot of people who think that's true, but I'd say two things to it. And I've asked two questions about it. One question related to two observations, one of which is, yeah, in the long run, we're all dead. I mean, you know, a lot of bad shit can happen along yeah. the way to Putin losing here. And pretty much that's not even the nuclear thing. I mean, you talked about barrel bombs and, you know, there's the thermobaric bombs. There's stuff he did in Aleppo and Grozny, like war crimes. It's like the worst stuff you can do to a human being short of nuclear warfare. All of that stuff he's done before, and he might do it again. And a lot of people could die along the way. And mm -hmm. as you said, the stakes are huge. If it was obvious that Putin was going to end up weaker and was going to lose this war, then the stakes for the world that you laid out in the very first answer of the podcast wouldn't be very high. We'd be like, okay, well, eventually this is all going to be, it's all going to end in tears for Vladimir Putin. It seems to me that the reason this matters and the reason that the Ukrainian ambassador was like, this is about the world, this is about Europe, is that it is a fundamental challenge to the whole world order that we've lived around. So it's not a foregone conclusion. And- you know, there's this other larger thing, which is that the Putin story is part of this other large story that I know you think about all the time, which is the rise of authoritarianism and autocracies mm. around the world. And that it's happening not just in Russia and not just mm. in Hungary, but it's happening in France and it's happening in America and it's happening mm. in places where it's like, okay, maybe Putin is doomed, but he's done a lot of damage in helping to foment this other larger political wave movement swell that's changed a lot of things. Yeah. Outside the geostrategic complex, but inside the domestic context of a lot of Western democracies that don't look very democratic anymore. The fact that one of Biden's core lines, and it's one of the few truly memorable short lines of his presidency and campaign, is the challenge of our times is democracy versus autocracy. This is an object lesson in that. Right. Now, yeah. the arguments that the autocrats and their apologists, even in the you know quasi-Western world, have used is twofold. First of all, it's a backlash against globalization. So it's really about 
beating back or questioning the virtue of immigration diversity. We need to reinforce our old tribal certainties because they have virtues. And the allies who are helping us do it, who are bringing money in, particularly Russia and China, their pitch has always been a pseudo-civilized wealth without liberty, right? Let's right. not fetishize the decadent West and the virtues of democracy. Let's offer people government that gets things done, right? Which, by the way, is the same pitch, slightly less, a lot less ideological, but the same practical pitch as was being made in the 1930s when people said that democracy was on the ropes and that we were decadent and divided because we were diversity. The pluralism was a basic weakness. All that same shit we heard then that we've heard in recent years. Vladimir Putin's violence after, of course, lying about it, because lies are the only thing more predictable than the underlying threat of violence from people like this, has been to expose that that trade, that I could choose the other team in the culture war in favor of the authoritarian side, because it really has an element about cultural purity and government efficiency and wealth without liberty. And isn't that what people want anymore? And why should we trade that for the, the chaos and division and decadence of democracy? This is why. This is why liberty matters. This is why wealth without liberty is a bad trade for you, your family, your business and civilization. So I think that Putin's violent invasion here has actually crystallized why it matters, why it counts, why you shouldn't be swayed. The fact that Poland, where you are with the Law and Justice Party, with, with Hungary, with Orban, that they, Poland has been really good. It, it, you know, in the context of the international alliance, yes, out of self-interest and historical memory, but uncharacteristic of its current government. Orban, one of Putin's stalwarts, all of a sudden singing a different tune. Yeah, it's got an election coming up, but don't doubt that. The Germans, you know, new chancellor who was dragging his feet a little bit, all of a sudden found religion in, in terms of Nordstrom and standing up and even denouncing, asking former German Chancellor Schroeder, who's one of his political mentors, to get off the board of Gazprom. But that's the kind of corruption that has created this environment, you know, and all of a sudden, I think this is a real wake up call for why that's a totally unacceptable trade off. And it's not two equal systems jousting for supremacy, but to doubt whether this is trajectory defining, whether he gets away with it. Yeah. That's why it matters. And that's why he can't. Yeah. Okay, so the rant uh, endeth here. No, we could talk about this this topic. I mean, I'm so that deep, fires I'm, me up. Though. My head's so in it right now. Like, I, sure, I, I, I can't, I can't get out of it. But also, I, by the way, given what you've seen, yeah. are you more pissed off and more righteously focused on the issue of refugees and how they've been politicized? Whereas, if you go back and take a step back, you see that accepting refugees, political refugees, in circumstances like this is American humanity its best. I mean, how does that make you think about the cut down of the refugee policy over the last several years? I was already pretty pissed off about it. So it's like, <laughs> so it has, but yes, being close to it. And, you know, I mean, look, there are a lot of complexities to it in a place mm -hmm. like this where, you know, these things are cut through with issues of race, particularly where, you know, a lot of countries are very open to accepting these mm -hmm. white refugees yes. from Ukraine yes. where they would not be like they're not into the Syrians and not in Afghanistan. Yeah. So yeah, there yeah, is, yeah. it's different. So there's there are elements you have to grapple with. And so the unalloyed generosity, I mean, the fact that the polls have let in half a million people in the last like eight days here and that they could be looking at 
couple million. I mean, Warsaw is a city of 1.75 million people, John, and the mayor here is like, bring them on. And I'm like, you might get a million refugees in Warsaw. You know, a city of 1.75 million, that's a very large number of refugees with no end in that's sight. Amazing. None of them are talking about, we think we're going back to Kiev. Kiev was probably going to be brazed to the ground, right? It's going to be a, a burnt out husk. So you have these people coming here who are like, we have nowhere else to go. We're probably not going to leave for a very long time. In a city of 1.75 million people, they're like, we might have a million refugees here in a couple months. Like, that, what does that do? What does that do well, to the health, education, welfare, tax systems of, of a city like this? And yet the mayor is saying all of the Ukrainians are welcome here. It's very inspiring, but it's, you know, we always, we know, we have to note, right? Would he be doing the same for Afghanistan, refugees from Afghanistan or, or Syria? Probably not. But I still, it's still inspiring to see it. And it makes uh-huh. you wonder why there's not more of that around. I guess I'm trying to answer your question about does it piss me off. When you see people acting, even in qualified ways, with the degree of generosity that people are doing right now for Ukrainian refugees, it does make you wonder why there isn't more of that spirit in a lot of other places that have a lot more money and a lot more ability mm-hmm. to be a lot more open if they wanted to be. Thus, it is my rant. It is an object lesson for why the international community, as well as these local leaders, need to step up a lot to help heal the violence that has been done to rebuild and expand infrastructure in places like that. Uh, and with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more John Avalon on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Often on this podcast, we'll like go back and try to find something that somebody said, a guest, when they were like a child, when they were very young. This is not quite in that category, though I do think it's sort of illustrative of the, the essence of Avalon, the Tao of Avalon. Um, and it is now, when I tell you that, that this clip, which you will think is recent, is in fact now 17 years old. Oh, You'll be Christ. like, what the fuck happened to these 17 years? That was like yesterday. So let's play this shot with you on The Daily Show with John Stewart, April 13th, 2005, which is, I believe my math is correct, 17 years ago. Here we go. You never see, you know, moderates, let's take to the streets and shout, be reasonable. You know, it's very difficult to rally the the passion. And that's part of the problem we've got. That's the reason things are so artificially polarized. It's not that the American people are so polarized. It's that the parties are being controlled by these extremes and the debates being controlled by the extremes. We got to show people that there's actually a history and a heritage of strong centrist leaders. We're not politically homeless. Just because the story of centrism doesn't follow one party's path doesn't mean that's not the American character. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. You're laughing there. What's yeah, going on? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I... That was a song you sang for a long time. Well, I, 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 You I still, still do, sort of, but yeah. I still do, sort of, but I think the Republican Party has revealed itself under Donald Trump to, while I absolutely salute the honorable Republicans who are left, they are few and far between in, in the process of being chased to the hills. But, you know, that interview changed my life. In what ways? Well, it was my first book, Independent Nation, which was, you know, in the spirit of writing the book you want to read, even if you're not sure anyone else wants to read it, a history of centrist leaders in American politics and how some succeed and some failed, going back to Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, you better not and put that out in 2022. That'll sell like 11 copies. Yeah, yeah. But it, it you know, it expresses, I, mean, I guess my beliefs haven't evolved all that much, although the political circumstances constantly have. That was the first big TV interview I did. That was sort of the big break for the book and the TV interview. And that started a a whole career in television. Chain reaction. Yeah. But, you know, I plead guilty. All my 
books certainly, and to some extent, a large percentage of my columns and my journalism has all been about confronting hyperpartisanship and polarization because it's a threat to democracy and I don't believe it reflects our best traditions or our deepest character as a country. Right. Whether it's Wingnuts, which was the book after that, which was about playing offense against the extremes in the first year of Obama, it's about 2009, and saying, hey, you know, when you hear Glenn Beck, you really need to understand the John Birch Society, that game too. Washington's Farewell, which was about George Washington's final speech where he warns about the dangers of hyperpartisanship and foreign interference in our elections and foreign wars. To this one, it's all variations on that theme, although I hope each of them you know, stands on their own. And I, I don't think they're repetitive or duplicative. That's been the thing I've, I've been most concerned about and most fired up about trying to marshal a counterweight towards. It's interesting, though, because that song that you were singing on that show, and the reason I said the thing about how if you wrote it in 2022, it only sell 11 copies, because like centrist, I don't even think you right now would want to label yourself a centrist, even if you believe in hyperpartisanship, which I do. And I believe it's a threat to democracy, too. I've been saying this, you know, you and I have been saying the same thing about this for a long time. But I would never call myself a centrist because the problem is, how do you identify what the mm-hmm. center even is anymore? And I'm not trying to, like, be just, like no, an no, asshole no, no, and I, go no, like, litigate. No, no, All no, I mean no. is I think at that time in 2005, you could say, I really don't like hyperpartisanship. The parties are controlled by their extremes. And you could kind of wear the centrist label and not have people kind of roll their eyes at you. They'd be like, okay, radical centrism. That sounds interesting. Now it's like, given where the Republican Party has gone, when people say they're centrist, it's like, well, I'm like, what are you saying? You're like a midpoint between fascist, authoritarian, anti-democratic, and people who are a little bit too far to the left. I mean, that's the problem with the label now. The politics have kind of superseded the label and means something to people different now than it did in 2005. Well, the, the label had baggage then, too, which is why, I mean, you know, the phrase moderate then, the hit on it was it was the yes. mushy moderate. It was right, didn't yeah. stand for nothing, split the difference. And I've always rejected that. I think actually, you know, the, the virtue of the phrase, the vital center, the radical center, as Brother McKinnon will sometimes yeah. call himself. Yeah. And he and I have been on the, the same side of that fight for a long time, is that it's not about indulging in, in both siders, and particularly given the times we are right now, where we have one political party that is dominated by an extreme that was unimaginable when I gave that interview, right? We were heading into an election where it was Barack Obama versus John McCain. And except for this, you know, Sarah Palin's presence on the ticket, it looks like a halcyon days of people trying to reach beyond their base and form new coalitions. I still very much believe that that's how American politics ought to work. I think that's our best traditions. The difference is it's got to be done from a position of principle by people who know what they believe in. In some cases, you know, they may agree with certain aspects of the Republican Party on economic issues, but certainly not a tax cut theology that only gives a damn about deficits and debt when a Democrat's president. On the Democrat side of the aisle, you know, I, I still think there's a, a fundamental virtue in the, the center-left approach to social issues and actually just a belief that governing can work on behalf yeah, of yeah. most people. I still think, though, that part of the problem that I identified then is actually more powerful now than ever, which is the feedback loop between the extremes and how these voices get amplified and push yep. people into a place where they can rationalize the lesser of two evils, right? And to me, the larger issue is forming the broadest possible coalition to defend democracy. But, but this is kind of the point in some ways. I guess what I, some of these things are semantic differences, but again, things have genuinely changed. I don't think you and I disagree about this. It's like back at a time when you'd be like, the parties have become captives of their wings and you would say, the country is not as radical or as polarized as its representatives are. We would often mm-hmm. say that. It was true. There was tons of polling that showed mm-hmm, it was true. Mm-hmm. 
Over time, the country has become actually more polarized. There's more of that ideological sorting, but also the nature of the battle has changed, right? Because mm-hmm. what you were fighting for was, the, as you said, vital center, radical center, right? Now it's like that kind of poses you between the far left and the far right, where now there's a different fight, right? The fight that you just said, there's team democracy and there's team autocracy. And if yeah. you're on team democracy, you can be conservative, you can be liberal, you can be left, right, or center. I don't give a shit. Are you for constitutional democracy? Are you for the ability to vote? Are you for mm-hmm. the stuff that's actually now we're debating, like whether you actually get to have a democracy anymore? And at that point, it's not about left, right, or center. It's like anybody on my team, I don't care how liberal you are, or how conservative you are, if you believe in that stuff, I'm like, my door's open to you. Yeah, totally. And yet there are people in the attempt to form those broader coalitions who will yes, say, well, I, I would never trust that person of course, because of they bring in the identity politics of it of all. And I think part of the point is that we need to be thinking a lot bigger than our tribal differences, the tribal politics that got us into this mess in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it, it is just that existential. And I do think that team democracy tends to represent the people who want to find a way to work together. And that's, look, that's that's the essence of democracy at the end of the day. But you can't underestimate the extent to which a party that falls under the sway of Donald Trump and then sticks with him after he tries to overturn an election on the back of the big lie. That's something that that I didn't think was possible. So Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is the new book. Yeah. Thank you. This is a book, as you said, Mm -hmm. all of your work is kind of wit and variation on this one theme, and it's evolved over time. You've not been a one-trick pony, and you've not been a broken record, but there's been a through line. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you to connect the Lincoln book to that through line that we've just been kind of like laying out here. But before you do that, I want to ask a prior question, just because it's the last thing that my mind twigged on as you went past it. If it's team democracy versus team autocracy... You know, one theory is, hey, people who want to build a broad coalition who want to work together are the ones who tend to be on team democracy. There's another point of view among some people who are on team democracy, which is that we have to kill the fucking fascists. I don't care about a broad coalition. I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying, you know, you hear Mm -hmm. this, right? Who are Mm -hmm. like, there's not a way to work with these people or a way to reform them. There's only one thing to do, which is to drive the Republican Party into the sea. And there are many Republicans, the Republicans who ended up in the anti-Trump column, many of them say exactly that. You know, the Matthew Dowds and the Mm -hmm. Steve Schmitz of the world, they're like, there's no working with these people. There's only destroying them. And that's not really the tone or temper of the kind of coalition politics that you've generally embraced. And that's why I'm kind of interested in what you think about that. Right. You know, I do this daily reality check on CNN, and I've been really unsparing about the danger that exists. You know, if you're a member of the Sedition Caucus that voted to overturn the election attack at the Capitol, we're done here. Like, I'm done. There's never going to be a time that I don't call you a member of the Sedition Caucus. Could be 30, 50 years from now. You are not somebody who can live that down through any number of distractions or attempts to. uh, That's fundamental. That is democracy defining and soul defining for you if you made that choice at that moment. You know, what I'm mindful of is the danger of these feedback loops over history, right? You know, it's Hitler's invocation of the dangers of communism that ended up causing all the, you know, industrialists to back him and they thought he was a fool they could use. Yeah, right. Right? Even in the wake of the Tea Party and in Donald Trump. Well, we'll harness the crazy and then move it in constructive directions. Yeah. That's a dangerous game, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm like, I don't and so I just think that, That is not what I'm talking about. And the reason I wrote the Lincoln book is because Lincoln obviously is the leader at a time when our democracy is in deeper crisis than we are today, right? Studying the Civil War reminds us we've been through worse before and we got through it. And that Lincoln's leadership 
which is really rooted in character, as I think ultimately is the, the quality that matters far above anything else in, in a presidency and, and in people in general. He is a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries. That feedback loop had contributed to the ruptures, right? Lincoln's attempt to say, look, I'm just trying to stop slavery's expansion and his willingness to empathize with his opponents and his you know, refusal to demonize people, disagree with them. All that stuff is real and true. And it wasn't enough to stop the Civil War. Right. right. Those people had already bought into the idea that losing an election to him meant the destruction of their way of life. And they were already playing a game. These elites posing as populists who were terrified of demographic change and they manipulated people's emotions. And once the violence started, that perpetuated the polarization at that point. And especially if you are a man of peace in a time of war, as Lincoln was, there's no substitute for victory. The book is about how you win the peace. It's also about Lincoln's vision of reconciliation and reunification. But Lincoln's basic prescription is unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace, right? He understands that right. if you don't really win the peace, you don't really win the war. But that's true on the in the elections, right? If 1864, if he'd lost that election, it's all over. And he knew that, right? right? But then he also, for example, refused all these peace protesters' offers for a ceasefire before surrender, because he understood that if there was a ceasefire before surrender, that the political will would be lost to eradicate slavery for all time. And that would not remove the core source of the war, which means we'd just be at war later. So this is what I mean about a vision from the radical center that is consistent with reconciliation that is still decisive on the major issues of its time. The failure of people to decisive on the major moral issue of the time is the problem. What Lincoln combined was a temperamental moderation with moral courage. And yes. just as crucially, that moral courage doesn't cross into a sense of moral superiority. Yeah. And that kind of a moral humility is key. And, you know, we're talking about defending democracy. And as a young man, Lincoln famously said, as a nation of free men, we will live for all time or die by suicide. Those are the dangers you deal with. And whenever we take this stuff for granted or we allow these forces to get out of control because it seems like good short term politics, we dance with the devil in a very real way. Yeah. And the twist in the book that ties it to the other thing we've taken for granted, which is the 75 years of relative peace and prosperity we've had in Europe, the liberal democratic order that America establishes with its allies, is the twist and the turn in the book that people aren't going to expect, which is where the book began. I found a quote from General Lucius Clay. It was the American general who oversaw the occupation of Germany. Yep. And he was a guy who'd grown up in Georgia 30 years after the Civil War. And someone asked him, what guided your decisions? Because the Second World War is when we really successfully did unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. And he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. And that, to me, was so profound. And that connection between the past, the present and the future all coming together. And the fact that we have struggled to win the peace in our lifetimes. Yeah. So what are the best practices and what's the political leadership, strategic and tactical that can lead to those ends? That's what interested me, and that's what interests me, and that's that's what the book's about. As we said, we've, we've written all these books, and they're all there was a through line, and you just like brilliantly laid out how this connects to the rest of the Avalon oeuvre. Um, oh, if, I were, if, I, if I were in Paris, that's how I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> Choking on an egg. Yeah. Omelette du fromage, as Steve Martin used to say. <laughs> Omelette du fromage. At some point, you've written about Washington. You've covered a lot of waterfront, dude. Like you come to Lincoln, and I ask you as, a, as someone who's written a couple books myself. Lincoln's been written about by a lot of people, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so to me, it's always like, man, you got to feel like you got 
Does it, like, what, well, I got to ask you yeah. a question. How, like, how did you think about that? Like, sure. I'm going to go write a book about Abraham Lincoln. There have been great books written about it. Uh-huh. First of all, there's been a lot. Some have been great. Some have sucked. Many have sucked. Many mm-hmm. have just been totally forgettable. But you take on, you're taking a big swing there because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I think, you know, I'm getting bet that Abraham Lincoln's your favorite president. I think he's the greatest president, right? Yeah. Yes, right. So yeah. I think it's kind of in the category of, I'm going to piss a lot of people off when I say this, but like, I think among smart people who actually know anything about American history, Lincoln's pretty much people's favorite. I think he's the greatest president. Yeah. I mean, the Civil War and how those things are in your book and have been in other books, the, the depth, the existential centrality of the issue that was being addressed, the bloodshed, the sacrifice that was put on the table, the threat to American democracy, the very nature of the republic itself, stitching it back together. I mean, there have been big challenges for other presidents throughout time, and we can name them all. But I just don't know that there's a greater one at the level of the moral challenge, the political challenge, the economic challenge in every way, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that he rose and met it is like otherworldly, right? So many mm-hmm. people are think he's the greatest president. I guess the question is, you know, what gives you the right to write a book about our greatest president? You know, like, like totally, who, who, totally legitimate question that my wife asks me all the time. Yeah. I look, I'll put a number to the absurdity of it, right? Because yeah. the question is, how can you be so arrogant and jackassery enough to believe that you can make, like, you can read a book, dude. Why don't write one? The world doesn't need your Lincoln. Totally fair point. And the number that makes that really daunting yeah. is 16,000. That's, That's the number books, of books, books about Abraham Lincoln, at. right? So you look at that and you're like, really, dude, why bother? You're like, I got so, a fresh angle over here. I swear to God, I got one. So, I, I, so no is, one's ever talked about. This is the fucked up thing, right? So I had this idea about what I wanted to do, which was Lincoln's vision of winning the peace, yeah. right? My editor at the time, Alice Bay, you've done a lot of Lincoln books. And so she was like, yeah, slow your roll there, buddy, you know? <laughs> so I went and I called. A number of Lincoln scholars, I think there were three primarily that I called. And then I went to the Abraham Lincoln Bookstore in Chicago, which was started by Carl Sandburg. There's a guy who's been there for 50 years. And I asked them all the same question, right? Here's my idea. Has it been done? Am I stretching? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the stretching point is critical to how I got there. But I, I talked to this guy, Daniel Weinberg, in the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which is awesome in Chicago. Everyone should go and buy books there. And told me idea and he gets this look in his eye and he looks around. We're in a bookstore, just books about Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, like yeah. three rooms of them. Yeah. He says, you know, I'll be damned. I don't think anyone's done that. Mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln, the peacemaker. Yeah. And the reason is really logical. He's assassinated five days after Appomattox. He never has a chance to implement his vision of winning the peace. Yeah, right. So that makes perfect sense. But If you trace, and I focus on the last six weeks of her life, from the second inaugural through his last speech in Washington, that's supposed to be a victory speech, but ends up being about his vision for Reconstruction. If you trace his comments talking to Generals Grant and Sherman aboard the River Queen in the portrait of peacemakers that's captured in that, which hangs in the White House, which is purchased by Harry Truman. If you look at presidential proclamations, he lays out a very specific vision of how he intends to win the peace after winning the war. And that's what I chronicled and stitched together and connected the dots on. It's not just the words he said. It's also the actions he took, the personal example of Lincoln as a peacemaker. Like, for example, when he's touring a a Union field hospital, meeting with all the Union dead, and he sees a tent out back and asks the doctors turning around, what's back there? And he says, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Those are just wounded rebel soldiers. And he says, that's exactly where I do need to go. Yeah. 
We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more John Ablon on Hell and High Water. And we're back with John Avalon here on Hell and High Water. This is a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. But that idea, you know, who knows? Maybe the guy in the bookstore is wrong and somebody else has done it. But who cares? Because it's interesting enough, as you say. And it gives you an opportunity to do something. Even if someone else has taken a shot at that idea, your shot's likely to be different enough. And, and yeah. as it turns out, the book is compelling. I want you to talk about the second inaugural because in the same way that I would say, you know, there are a handful of presidents who you make a credible case for as greatest. And as I said, I think really ultimately the right choice is Lincoln. It's also the case that when you think about presidential rhetoric, Lincoln's second inaugural is like, you know, pantheon stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Many people, again, many smart people would say greatest presidential inaugural of all presidential inaugurals. And you say in the book, it's a big moment and he rises to the occasion. Lincoln gave us some shitty speeches in his life. He was a windy dude. But this was not a bad one. I want to play because thank God for Steven Spielberg. He gives us Daniel Day-Lewis doing Lincoln in the movie that came out in 2012 and won a bunch of Oscars. And so it gives us the ability to do something we would not normally do, which is like play a Lincoln sot because they don't have that. He's not been on CNN <laughs> or on MSNBC, but we do have that. So the second inaugural, this is you say in the book, this March 4th, 1865, end of the Civil War is in sight. And you say Lincoln's vision for the fight for peace was crystallized in the final paragraph of his second inaugural address. So let's hear Daniel Day-Lewis do the final paragraph of the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. It's nice to hear that, right? I mean, you know. It always gets me, man. It really he, he, does. Well, and you, you know, you can't get a better. Daniel Day-Lewis is like, it is just, I remember when he, when they cast him in it and you thought he's like one of our genuinely greatest actors ever. And this is a role that he could rise to. And man, he fucking crushes it in that movie. And it's an incredible performance. It sounds stupid to say this, but it's a way more nuanced and textured performance than you could even imagine. And you imagined it was going to be nuanced and textured, mm -hmm. but it's very rich. So I don't want you to talk about the movie. What I want you to talk about is that paragraph. I want you to talk about like, you said it always gets you. It's beautiful. We all get it. And it's appealing to some very beautiful aspirations. It has it beautifully written and beautifully, I'm sure actually given in the original was probably well delivered too. But what is it that you see in those words as being essential to what you claim it to be, which is like, this is the essence of what his plan was for peace. It is a roadmap to reconciliation. It is also the poetry of democracy. I mean, those first lines are the most famous. And it's the final paragraph, also final sentence of a 700 word inauguration that for the most part is not about politics and policy at all, but it's a very Old Testament speech. It's all about the Civil War as collective punishment for the original sin of slavery and that the North and the South alike were being punished that the North couldn't rest easy with a sense of moral superiority simply because it didn't have slavery and that slavery was, of course, 
the cause of the war. The last paragraph is this pivot to what I call New Testament leadership. It's the promise of life after death. And it's more textured simply than with malice toward none, with charity for all, although that does express the kindness and radical forgiveness that's necessary for a democracy to heal after a civil war. It goes on to talk about the importance of moral humility, as God gives us to see the right, which also assumes implicitly that no one person can claim to exclusively know the will of God, a conscious caution against that kind of arrogance. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in. This is also about work. It's about rolling up your sleeves and doing the work of caring for the people, particularly the widow and the orphan. And then to do all which may achieve and cherish. The cherish is important. It's the appreciation. It's the not taking for granted. A just and a lasting peace. Those two things are not the same. You know, peace without justice is insufficient among ourselves and with all nations. It's all there. It is the Zen cone of American democracy, and it bears endless repeating and rumination. It is rich with specifics because there are implications in every line, and it's just a thing of beauty. And the Zen cone of American democracy, you're like the Zen master, John Avalon, the, the Zen master. I feel like, you know, God, grasshopper, you know, it's like I'm like, you know, like, like, I'm like ready to receive some more of that wisdom. One of the things about the movie that I love so much, and it does illuminate a thing that anybody who's even a mildly astute student of Lincoln gets, but that often is not in the top lines of the way that people conceive him as a stereotype and the way that they're taught, at least in grade school. It's just what a badass politician he was. And you mm -hmm. talked a second ago about the mixture of temperament and idealism. He combined moderation with moral courage, and that's what we don't see enough. Right. Moderation of temperament with moral courage, right? I would say he combined both those things with mm -hmm. an incredibly tough-minded, ball-busting, but compromise-adjacent kind of approach to <laughs> politics. He was a wheeler dealer, right? Mm -hmm. He was not like some saint floating above the down and dirty of no. politics. He was like, I'm going to get down there and I'm going to horse trade. I lie if I have to. I'm going to make deals with people I don't like. You know, patronage is fine. He did all kinds of stuff that we kind of like go, ooh, we turn our nose up about. Now, Lincoln was like, no, that's how you get shit done. And that's it's important, right? Yeah. The ability to, to marry your moderate temperament with your moral clarity and also be like, hey, man, get the fucking votes. Win the vote. Yeah. He was not above the rough and tumble of politics. And that's one of the things the movie does such a great job doing because it's about the passage of the 13th Amendment, right? yes, which is right. not everybody's idea of a, you know, hang on the side of your seat. But he is more than content to use transactional means to achieve transformational goals. And that's one of the key things about Lincoln's leadership. He's inflexible about the core goals and the essential principles. He is willing to be incredibly flexible about all the details. He's willing to negotiate about it. As long as you end slavery, accept presumption of the union and have no ceasefire before surrender, everything else is negotiable. Yeah. And so too in, in reconstruction, as long as you pass the 13th amendment, abolish slavery in your own state constitutions and begin on a path towards a real multiracial democracy, the tone and tenor in which you do it, he says it's gonna be different in different states. And he's really impatient for the people who are always you know, more ideological 
and all or nothing about things because he sees them as impediments to progress. He's stealing yes. himself for fights with the radical Republicans. So I think especially when the goal is something as trajectory defining for a nation and a contradiction resolving as ending slavery with the 13th Amendment and the way it's done. And the fact that that he's clear is the purpose of the war. It's not simply to end the war. It's not even simply to stitch together the union. Peace at any price can be too expensive. He's got to address and remove the core cause of the war, which was the contradiction of slavery and the way that it cheapened American democracy by making a mockery of the idea that all men are created equal. Yes. And you just said a thing that I loved. It's a very also Atlanish kind of thing, uh, which was, I think you said, transactional means to transformational ends. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's very strong. And I will say, I was not actually going to play this, but now I'm going to because I love the scene so much. It's the scene with when they're getting really close in the 13th Amendment, but they're still a few votes short. Oh, is this the Tommy Lee Jones conversation about the. No, this is a different one. This is, I'm going to play David Strathern and, and David Costabile playing William Seward and James Ashley. William Seward became Secretary of State, I, th mm. I think, at one point, right? And James Ashley. And it's, you know, we try to keep this a little bit short, but there's a great moment where Lincoln gets pissed at these guys who are giving him all the reasons why they can't get the votes and like this mm -hmm. is in the way and they can't do this and I can't do that. And Lincoln finally like lashes out at them. It's a longer scene, but I love this. Just the, you get the feel of it here. We need two yeses, three abstentions, more, four yeses and, and one more abstention and the amendment will pass. You got a night and a day and a night, several perfectly good hours. Now get the hell out of here and get them. Yes, but how? Buzzards, guts, man. I am the president of the United States of America, clothed in immense power. You will procure me these votes. First of all, it's awesome to see David Costa Bill in there because you're like, yeah. that's Wags. What's Wags doing in there uh, with, uh, with Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> or good like, night and good luck. Uh, yeah. You know. Strathern, yeah. But that scene is great because there's, again, you pointed the Tommy Lee Jones scene, which is all about like the purity of the abolitionist and, mm -hmm. and Lincoln kind of going love like. I that, that dialogue as you might want it's, it's an incredible exchange. But it gets again to this kind of the art of practical politics. The reason I raise it is as a transition to the last thing we'll talk about. And I'll let you go just because, again, you and I could probably talk all night. And it's, you know, it's a little We haven't even gotten to music much much to my disappointment. I know. We'll, we'll you have to come later. back and we'll do a music thing later. There you, you go. Know, the, so the bridge is the bridge to, there is no Lincoln today. You know, and it's a kind of a joke. You wouldn't even say, like, well, where is, who's the Abraham Lincoln of today? It's a <laughs> dumb question. But if you think back to these presidents we've covered closely, right? You think back to Trump, Biden now, but Biden, Trump, Bush, Obama, Clinton, maybe, I don't know if you covered Herbert Walker Bush, but like basically my career has been Clinton, mm -hmm. Bush, Obama, Trump. Now, Biden, you know, I'd started doing this whatever 30 extra years ago. You think about those guys, what are the Lincoln-esque qualities you see in any, they're all admirers of Lincoln, all of mm -hmm. them, I believe. Now, except for Trump, sorry. <laughs> the normal presidents are all admirers of Lincoln in various ways. George W. Bush basically was like, I look at Lincoln and go, I got no right to bitch about anything. When I see how hard Lincoln's life was, I realize I got it easy. They loved him, they all admired him, they all spoke mm -hmm. of him. What are the qual Lincoln-esque qualities you see in any of those that you'd like to point out and kind of highlight so we can see how Lincoln's example or his spirit or his approach in a lesser form, a more modest form, a not quite so heroic mm -hmm. form has in fact inhabited some of these people and we can kind of point to it and say, yeah, it's still alive today. Yeah. So one of the points I make in the book is that Lincoln's politics and policy is often a reflection of principles, which are themselves are a reflection of a person's personality. It's just that basic. Yeah. 
Lincoln's personality, I think, is defined by empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. These are defining characteristics of his personality among yeah. his contemporaries. And, you know, all those presidents except Trump, who I think exhibits none of those qualities, just clinically, or is an Andrew Johnson type figure in terms of his personal characteristics. You know, Clinton certainly had an expansive vision and political skill. He had the ability to empathize. Honesty is not one of his defining qualities. Neither is humility, but humor to some extent. I think, you know, Biden is clearly a good and a decent man. And he's Mm. not a bad politician, particularly in his prime. And he does care. He has enormous empathetic capacity. But, you know, I think the one who most resembles him in, in his ability to summon the better angels of our nature and it's not just the symmetry of being the first black president from Illinois is Obama. Yeah. One of the things you realize and you, you do it when you write a book about somebody too, is that the, the mythologization of, of presidents and putting them on a pedestal does a disservice because it makes their wisdom more distant. And it's much more interesting to understand them as people inevitably flawed as their contemporaries saw them. And, you know, the myth is always a refracted version of the reality in some way. I would just say that it's not about finding another Lincoln, right? You know, everyone's, oh, we'll never find another Lincoln. You're right. You won't. But I think what you just said is leader of a similar spirit. And Lincoln's qualities were rare in his time as well. One of the points I make is Lincoln is considered a greatest president, appropriately so, right? He is bookended by two of our worst, by a lot, Buchanan and Andrew Johnson. And that's just a reminder that, you know, those qualities – that he exhibited and the standards he held himself up to are rare, but they can be transformative precisely because they're rare. And so it's about finding people of a similar spirit. And I think as long as we focus on character in future presidential contests as sort of the acid test question, broadly defined, you know, I'm not a big deadhead by any means, but the documentary on the Grateful Dead, I loved. And what I loved about it was, is it showed how the dead came out of a beat generation tradition. In Garcia's mind, right? Predating yep, yep. what became the culture. And at the end of his life, he has this stray interview that's in the documentary. And for some reason, it, I, it had this obsessive effect on me where he said, I just hope that what we do in the same way that we were inspired by Kerouac and the Beats, that whatever we do going forward will inspire people of a similar spirit yeah. to pick up the thread and carry it forward. Yeah. And that similar spirit is highly variable and, and really weird what motivates people, what makes them... You know, the, the combination of things they bring to what they do and what they love. But to the extent that there's a thread that carries forward, the qualities that Lincoln exhibited, the reminder that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership, that words are powerful from a president, but a personal example is even more powerful, and that you need to translate these ideas into action through policy and practical politics. That's why he sets the standard, and that's why the one thing we will do well if we search for people of a similar spirit going forward. I have one last comment to make, and I've wanted to say this for a while, but I'm going to play, you know, (laughs) you can find sound of, we looked for it, the things that Bill Clinton has said about Lincoln, the things Obama said about Clinton. Every president has some riff on Lincoln. But then there's like the classic, the best version, the best thing, easily the best thing that any president has ever said about Abraham Lincoln, and that would (laughs) be the the following here. I'm the least racist person in this room. I said, not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody done what I've done for the black community. 
Terry is, I'm the least racist <laughs> person, true. and no one has ever done as much for black people than me, other than maybe Abraham Lincoln. Since Abraham Lincoln, there's no one who's done more for black people. Yeah. Like. So here's the point I tried to make. That was done for fun. I was joking. Mm-hmm. Anybody who wasn't mm-hmm. clear about this, I'm mocking Donald Trump. And if you're not clear or not, you should probably check yourself. Yeah, you should yeah, probably check on. yourself out. But here's the question I wanted to ask. There's that guy, Donald Trump, right? He got impeached the first time because of his dealings with a guy we now see on television every day named Zelensky. And it's amazing, you know, Putin, Trump, supposedly, they all looked at this guy and they thought he was a clown. They've all, supposedly, they all had no respect for Zelensky. They trashed Zelensky, you know. And there were a lot of people the political cognoscenti who trashed Zelensky too at various times, made fun of his background on television and Dancing with the Stars and all that shit. I just want you to talk about, through the prism of presidential leadership, which is a prism that applies as well, even in the disparate circumstances of other countries, the, the presidential leadership that Zelensky has, as, as obvious, if you don't understand that, that what you're seeing from, from Zelensky makes it so clear, like imagine Donald Trump in these same circumstances and whether he could rise to the occasion the way Zelensky has, it's ludicrous, right? So that's why I wanted to bring the Trump thing together yeah. to kind of do the handoff to Zelensky and then ask you that question. You spent a lot of time with Abraham Lincoln. And I'm not going to ask you, is Zelensky like Lincoln? But no. again, it's similar spirit presidential leadership, the prism, look at Zelensky and just to tell me what you've seen in him as we sign off today, closing back at the war again, you know, let us now praise Zelensky. He had a meeting with 300 congressmen. He said, this might be the last time you see me alive. What we have watched over the last few weeks with Zelensky is an example that no matter how this story ends for him or in the immediate future for Ukraine, that there will be statues built and books written and moves made about this man who was dismissed and disrespected and disregarded when he came in. He was an actor. He was a comedian. I'm sure as Trump would have noted, he's physically short. And what we've seen, the leadership he has shown, I think stems from that same issue that we were talking about. Lincoln, when he entered the presidency, was a one-term congressman with no executive experience or military experience from a new upstart third party whose election was polarizing enough that without winning a majority of, of the popular vote, it spurred secession. There was nothing to suggest that he could do that. He was widely disrespected and demonized and disregarded. But it comes down to, in both cases, the essential question again, character and the capacity to grow. And it's that acid test question, you know, Robert Caro writes, power doesn't corrupt, power reveals. And that's what times of crisis do. They reveal the character of the man. And you've seen Zelensky rise and set a personal example with skin in the game with phrases like, I need weapons, I don't need a ride. You know, that he's not going to flee the country in the face of danger and try to lead an exile government. He's going to wear a T-shirt and stay in the bunker and talk to people and use his personal risk as moral leverage to get them to step up and do the right thing for the people who's suffering. It's everything that people talk about and that executives and leaders rarely do. And it puts so many of people who aspire to be in leadership positions to shame, but it's just a reminder that character, capacity to grow, and stepping up when it gets hot out, when the crisis comes, those are the moments that define you, and he has passed every test, and he will be remembered as one of the great 
heroes and leaders of our time because of the example he set and how it's been seen by the world. It's inspiring. I don't doubt that he believes it, and I don't doubt that it's possible that he may not be alive for much longer, but I hope that that's not the case. Everyone of course. goodwill and, and good conscience hopes that that's the case, and we'll get to enjoy and see him grow even further. John Avalon, I know you're going to get to see you grow even further because you've like got probably like 30 more books in you. You've got like a lot more. These themes of yours have legs, so you're going to oh. keep writing them, and we're going to keep reading them, but in the Avalon oeuvre, uh, <laughs> Lincoln and the Fight for Peace may be uh, maybe the best one yet. Everybody's got to go get it. Buy it. Buy it. Don't steal it. Buy it. Buy that thing. Get that book. Read that <laughs> Thanks, book. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to John Avalon for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Pierre Benname and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and new to the podcast, the one and only Marshall Eisen is our executive producer.